Father in heaven, thank you for humor and silliness and your grace and your peace. And I, I want to come, Jesus, before you um, and acknowledge the places of my community. Some of us here are just here because our friends are here. Some of us are here um, because we just love you and want to worship you and want to be in this community. Some of us don't even know why we're here. Some of us are wrestling with our anger, with mental illness, with just our own shame over our sin. And this is a hard place to be, but we're here. Uh, So I ask that you would honor that, Jesus, that you would show us an extra amount of grace, that we would be able to tangibly experience that. But as we talk about your truth, Jesus, I ask that you would give us courage to believe what's true and to push aside what's false, that you would give us insight not only into you but into one another, and that you would give us um, a way of grabbing hold of your hope um, as we walk out into this world where there's just a lot of craziness both in our own minds and all around us. And so we ask um, that you would help us to hold on to that hope as we leave tonight. And I ask that in your holy name, Jesus. Amen. Um, well, welcome, everybody. I want to start tonight in the Gospel of Luke. And Luke wrote a story about Jesus. What Gospel means is the good news or the victories. So Luke took Mark's original manuscript, and he did a whole bunch of interviews, and he wrote a story about Jesus. He kind of filled in places that Mark didn't talk about, and uh, he wrote this story. And we're going to talk about a particular one in chapter 7. So if you have a Bible or you use a Bible app, you can go to chapter 7 or you can just listen. We're going to um, start in verse 36 of chapter 7 of Luke. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. Now, a Pharisee is a religious ruler. It's somebody who's in charge of how the people worship. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owe money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them 
with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I've been thinking about this story all week. And a lot of times when I read the Gospels, I try to imagine myself in the story. So I'm kind of sitting there smelling the dirt and the perfume and kind of experiencing this extremely awkward moment, right? If you could imagine that while I'm talking to you and interacting, some woman is crying and sobbing next to me and cleaning my feet and pouring like axe spray all over me, right? You would find this to be relatively distracting at least, if not disturbing, right? You would have a hard time with this. And yet, as I reflect on this picture, the reason there are many reasons why I think this is in the New Testament. But one of the reasons I think Jesus has this story in there, the reason Luke put it in there, is that it is actually the picture of the gathered church. It is the picture of the way that you and I are and should be in this sense. That when we come together and we experience Jesus, all of our baggage is going to get exposed, right? And so it's going to actually be awkward and we're all going to kind of rub up against each other. And yet, the thing that Luke kind of zeroes in on, and the thing that Jesus offers, is that the way that you and I have a deepened love for Jesus and a deepened love for one another is connected to our knowledge of our forgiveness. The knowledge of what the cross and what the resurrection and what the ascension does for us, what the relationship with Jesus does. The reality, though, is that when we look at this, we may have a hard time putting ourselves in there. So let me put you into this story. The reality is is that you walk in that door, I walk in this door, and we all have Simon in us. And let's just talk about the woman who's a sinner. She's a prostitute, and she's probably Mary. So we all have Simon, and we all have Mary in us. Okay? Now, Mary was a very, probably a very prominent and powerful woman in the city. But not for the reasons that you'd want to be. We all have a set of addictions, compulsions, ways of n- not being able to control ourselves. And we all are extremely judgmental of one another. And the problem is, is that we come into community and those things rub up against each other. And brush up against each other. And we all come into things with baggage. We all have baggage that, sh- that affect the way we understand one another. 
And yet the message of Jesus is, is that the only way that you and I can survive together as Simons and Marys and hybrids of Simon and Marys, because we're all somewhere on the spectrum of the Simon Mary thing, the only way that we can actually interact and engage is that when we come together and encounter Jesus, we begin to understand how forgiven we are. And to know how forgiven we are, we need to understand that our baggage is serious. The way that you and I can love each other deeply is to touch deeply how forgiven we are. Okay? I want you to hold on to that. We're in this series in 1 Thessalonians. And 1 Thessalonians is Paul's first letter. And in Paul's first letter, when I introduced it, I started in the beginning with just his introduction. And I spent a long time in it because I thought it was important because it was the first time he writes this introduction in which he's going to write over and over again in all of his letters. And the key to this introduction is for him to remind us that we are all in Christ and that being in Christ, we carry two jewels. We carry two very important things into the world. We carry the grace of God and we carry the peace of God. Right? What is grace? Grace is the loving kindness of God poured out on you for no reason other than he loves you. And peace is having a deep understanding of your forgiveness. And that is the theme that Paul continually pushes to this church that he only got to spend two or three weeks with. All right? Now, where we pick up the story of Paul and his relationship with this church is that he has some anxiety. Paul doesn't like to be alone, meaning he's just like my son. My son is like, there's the extrovert scale, and then you go to Wikipedia to look for extroverts, and Elliot is the first one on there. Right? He, there is no introvert in him at all. He wants to be with people all the time. Even when he's sleeping, he'd like to be with people. He talks in his sleep a lot. He's interacting with people. Even in his sleep, he's extroverted. He needs to have some conversations. Right? Paul's actually the same way. And yet, he's concerned because he spent a couple weeks with these people that maybe he didn't offer them enough stuff, and maybe they've been distracted, maybe the enemy has tempted them, maybe they're confused about their faith, and so he sends Timothy to go check on them. Now, here's the thing about sending Timothy. He can't check Facebook, he can't check Instagram, he does, there's no hashtag First Thessalonians, right, or the Thessalonican church. He can't just see all the pictures of everybody smiling, right? And all that kind of stuff. He doesn't know what's going on. There is this concern about him. So he sends Timothy to find out. And we pick up the story in chapter 3, verse 6. Timothy is returned and Timothy has given them a report. So verse 6, but Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we long to see you. So the first thing he says is, Timothy's brought back this information, this good news. Now this is the only time he uses this word gospel about anything outside of Jesus. So he, and this word means victory. So he said, 
You, Timothy has come and said, they've had victories in their faith and in their love. Okay? And so what he's saying is that in their committedness to Jesus, that's your faith, your committedness to God, and the way that you love people, you've been on point. You've been doing what you're supposed to do. And that's really exciting. But then he says, but I'm really anxious. He just puts his baggage right out there. It doesn't take a lot for you to read under these words. He says, I'm so happy that you still like me because we only hung out for two weeks and I'm so happy you like me because I was worried that, that you didn't have the same kind of feelings I have about you. Now, the key to the church, the key for Simon and Mary to live together, one just expressing herself and the other trying to learn not to be judgmental for you to learn to even control those two in you and understand them you have to understand that the key is that we all have to begin to realize that connectedness us being connected is where transformation happens okay and paul is saying for i am so excited that you're committed to god and you're loving and that we're still connected like if you, we all come in with Paul's baggage saying, do you still like me? Do I have anything good to offer? As your leader and I sit up here and preach, I guarantee you when I'm done with the sermon and I sit down, I will think, do they still like me? Was that boring? Did they understand? Like we all have this in us where we're like, here's what I have. Is it, is it okay? Is it good? Even Paul has this. And guess what the church is for? We are God's instrument to remind each other that yes, you are. You are okay. I do like you in Christ's power. I like you, right? So Paul's saying, this is great. You've stayed committed to your faith and I'm excited that you still like me. And then he goes on. He says, therefore, brothers, in all your distress and persecution, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Paul takes it one step forward more. It's not just that he's happy they like him. He's saying, I am so excited in the midst of my suffering and my brokenness and all that's going on with us for the gospel that you guys are still in your faith. In fact, it means so much to him that he says, now I can live. Like now I can take hold of life because of what God is doing in your life. And there is the reason that you need to come to church. I feel like every Sunday all Eric says is, you just need to come to church. That's, that's the main point of my sermons. Come to church. Got it? That's the point. Okay, you can all go home now. No, no what, that's, that's, I think, the point of Thessalonians is that the only way for us to be transformed, the only way for us to be a community of God that understands our faith and lives it out is when we're pushed up against each other and in the midst of our struggle and our strife, and the things that we're wrestling with, I see your faith lived out. I see your transformation happen. 
And now I can really live. That when God is doing stuff, and I see it in your life, I get excited. And that's all Paul's saying is, this is awesome. The best part of being with Jesus is seeing all of you change. And it's so exciting that I just dance before God and I can live and it doesn't matter what people do to me. It doesn't matter my own suffering. It doesn't matter my own mental illness. It doesn't matter my own insecurities because God is doing something in your life. Then Paul says, Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. So not only is Paul just excited about what God is doing, Paul really wants to go and help the church out because he's only spent two weeks with them. So he's not saying your faith is horrible and bad and I need to fix it for you. Because he's already said it's awesome and I'm really excited and I can now really live. What he's saying is the same thing that happened to me when I started working in restaurants. I'd cooked since I was six years old. I cooked for lots of people. I knew how to cook. My mom taught me how to cook. But then I went to a steakhouse and I learned that I don't know how to cook steaks. And I needed my faith increased in steak cooking. Right? I needed to learn how to do it. Because my mom never cooked steaks. She didn't teach me how to do it the way... You know, that's supposed to. And then I went to a catering company and they learned, they taught me how to use a knife the proper way and how to chop really fast. It wasn't because I wasn't a good cook. I was a good cook. But I had things that needed to be shored up. This is all Paul is saying. But there's an important thing in it for you and I. Paul is saying, I have something good to offer you. It's this complete turnaround. It's saying, on one hand, I was so nervous that you didn't even want to be around me, to I'm so excited to come to you and tell you what I have to offer. I know this might be hard for you to believe, but every week and every group that you meet in and every time you engage in community, you have something good to offer. You have something unique that God has given you. Now, it may not mean that you have something to teach, but you have something unique to offer that I don't have and I don't know about God. There are parts of my faith that need to be shored up by you. You need to come alongside me and offer me those things. Some of you are like, no, 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 that's not true. Yes, it is true. Every time you walk through that door, the mantra that you should be saying is, I have something really good to offer Eric, and I'm going to go do it. I have something to teach my community about who God is. And that's why I'm here. Now that may seem daunting. You may think, I don't know what that is. Guess what? You don't need to because it's reflexive. Like you'll just do it once you enter into community. It will happen. But you have to come and you have to believe that and you have to be excited that you have something good and you have to go practice. These are all things you have to do. Now, Paul is saying, I'm so excited that God's doing good things in your life. Now, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. Has anybody ever had the experience where you say to somebody, hey, this is what God is doing, and then they get up and dance and do something awkward like Mary and pour perfume everywhere and 
But that's kind of the picture. Like, we should, everything should slow down in slow motion when you say, God's done something in my life. And fireworks should go off, and you should be like, yeah. And they should be like, yeah. And you should get the award for God doing something good, right? (laughs) Because you know what? Our faith seems sometimes relatively mundane. And ah, God kind of did something, and maybe it was indigestion, right? For those of you who watch, look at Facebook. Um, right, God should never feel like indigestion. We need to celebrate and engage and understand that we have good things to offer. Now, Paul says, okay, enough of that. I have something good to offer you. So since I don't know if I'm going to make it to you, I'm going to give you an outline. And I'm going to give you a prayer slash blessing slash instruction on what you should do. Okay, so here's, if I don't make it to you, here's kind of my outline for what you need to do. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May the strength of your heart, may he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Now there's, there's a number of things that he offers here, but at the core of them, it's interesting that he acknowledges that we all have needs and longings, right? We all have these things. What is the thing that Paul needs and longs for? Paul longs to go be with these people. He wants that desperately, right? All of us have those. So when we come into the community of God, we all have longings, right? We all have needs. We have things that we think we want and need as human beings, right? Some of us may be in the place where we're single and we walk in that door and we think, I would like to marry somebody and darn it, this church is full of married people and kids. Heck with that, right? I'm going to shut that down or say it's hopeless or do some other, come up with some other strategy, right? Or just kind of say, I don't have that need. That's not really a need. I mean, you don't have to be married, right? We can, we can, we all walk into our marriages this way. Those of us who are married, we go in and we're like, I have these needs and I have their longings and they're legitimate. But if you've been in marriage counseling with me or pre-marriage counseling, I say, hey, a lot of times what marriages look like are two ticks and no dog right? Because you're all trying to say, hey, you fill my need. No, you fill my need. Only none of you got any blood. So you're just sucking each other dry and you're angry at each other, right? So we take our needs and we shove them down. We all have longings and needs. The thing I think Paul is saying here is that those are legitimate, but he offers in the very first thing a way of operating with our needs. That when you and I walk into community, when we walk into our marriages, when we walk into parenting, friendship, work, we need to be cognizant. That's a big word. We need to be aware of the things that we want. It's okay. Because God created you that way. He created you with longings. They're good. Paul has this particular longing that he wants to be with his friends who he just found out like him. Right? He's excited. He wants to be there. So he isn't trying to plan out a strategy to get there. He's not trying to figure it out. What he does is he goes before God and he says, this is what I want. 
will you make a way? And not only does that, but when I was reading a commentator, they're talking about how he does it in a redundant sense when he's talking about God, because he says, God, our father. But in the original Greek, he says, God, our father, who's our father. Like he's emphasizing that there's this deep intimacy. Now, it's not when Jesus uses the word father to refer to God. He's not trying to say, hey, all of you had really good fathers and use your father as a model. No, that would be bad. No, what he's saying is fathers indicate intimacy. So when Paul says God our Father or God the Father, all he's saying is there's an intimate relationship with the God of the universe who cares about your needs and wants you to set them before him okay, and submit them to him. So part of what Paul is saying is it's okay to long for something, but you need to offer it to somebody. You need to offer it to God who cares, okay, and who is over those things. That way, then what you're saying is, I don't have to meet my needs. God can meet my needs. I'm going to let him do that. I don't have to figure that out. Now, the second thing he says is that he wants God to make their love increase and overflow. And this takes us back to the scene of Simon and the woman, the prostitute. It takes us back to actually what church is all about. For my love to overflow onto you, I have to be aware of how broken I am and how much need I am of forgiveness. Because if I think that I, if I'm like Simon, if I'm on the extreme of the spectrum and I think I've got it together, I know what's going on, there's just a few little tweaks, it's actually really hard for me to love you very well. Because love flows out of forgiveness. That is the ethic of the kingdom. And the reality is, is that I am powerless to give a you-know-what about you without Jesus. Powerless. Because I'm actually pretty selfish. And, and when I think about it and I sit back, there are a couple of things that I would like to do. One is I'd like to play video games. I would like to just do it as much as possible. I'd like to ignore my kids. I'd like my wife to do whatever I tell her to do when I tell her to do it. I'd like my community house to pay all my bills instead of me paying them. And I'm not exaggerating. I want that. Like in the core, when I look inside of the darkness of me, that's what I want. I'm out for me. And without knowing that I'm forgiven for that, for the way that I lie and manipulate so that I look good, so you think I look good, all those things that I wrestle with. If I, if I don't walk in here and say, I need Jesus' forgiveness, I can't love you very well. I can't love you very well. But you know what? When I look at Mary, loving you looks awkward and weird, right? Because love feels awkward and weird. So the invitation at the village is, I, I want our community to be awkward and weird. And it's okay if people run away from awkward and weird. It's good and rich to love. And when people love, it's vulnerable. And when people are vulnerable, it's messy. Okay? And that's all Paul is saying is, let's, the second thing I want you to know is you need to be a community of forgiveness so that your love flows over everybody. And then last, he says, that he wants their hearts strengthened 
so that they will be blameless and holy in the presence of our Lord and Father when our Lord Jesus comes. And really all that he's hoping for is that they will stay faithful. They've been faithful up to this point and that they will have the strength to stay faithful. Well, here's the thing. The only way that I can stay faithful and the only way that you can stay faithful is for you to engage. Because walking by yourself will have you drift away. Right? What Paul is hoping for the church in Thessalonica is that they will anchor themselves, that they will be anchored in Jesus so that they can't drift. Now, you know how that happens? It happens when you and I are excited about what God is doing in other people's lives. We kicked off First Thessalonians chapter 1 talking about being thankful for what God is doing. That the main part of being a follower of Jesus is being someone who is thankful for what God is doing. You want to be a person who's blameless and holy? It has nothing to do with doing the right thing and all about celebrating what God is doing and yelling it and shouting it. Peter tells us that our job as priests is to proclaim our journey out of darkness and into the light. To do that, we have to be people who celebrate what God is doing, which means we have to be people who recognize what God is doing. And to do that, we have to be people who are like Mary, who can be vulnerable and pour out our love for Christ and one another because of what we know about our forgiveness. So, I actually have some time for you to respond. Um, But before I have you respond, I want to offer you one little practical thing. One of the exercises that we went through with our monastic community on Saturday, and it's the thing that I've been kind of working into my life, is this question of, God, what do you want me to do next? Because here's the thing. In relationship with God, it's big. And when you hear big, grand ideas about embracing forgiveness, etc., etc., you just get lost as to what you're to do. So, after the time of responding, and when we're singing and just meditating, I want you just to say, God, what do you want me to do next? Where do you want me to show your love? How is it? What's, what's the next thing? That's all, I'm, that's all I want you to ask, God. What's the next thing? What do you want me to do next, God? So, with that question, does anybody have any response, any thoughts, any things that you want me to clarify? Anything like that. Any... Yes, in the back right there. Oh, thank you. <laughs> feel very reassured. <laughs> right. Hmm. Well, I would say that when you walk into community, you first walk into community with the idea that I'm here to minister. So other people have needs. And my job is to be the instrument of God's grace. 
in your life. Sometimes that may mean that I don't step in and meet your needs. Sometimes that may mean that I do, that I say things or offer you things that will be helpful. But I, the church is given to one another so that we are have a tangible expression of God's grace. right? So we can taste it. So we can know it. Anybody else? Yes. Yes, and I think a lot of times we get caught up in our thinking. If you're going to... Yeah, she was... <sighs> Thanks, Chuck. We needed a mic. So what she was saying, and you can correct me, is that it's really important for us to just ask what to do next. And if God is asking us to take his place, or that's what we think, then we should just do it and not kind of spiral out into, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing the wrong thing? Eric, yeah, Eric said, yeah. Just go with the gut of the Spirit. Yes, sir. And there's nothing wrong with celebrating what God's doing in other people's lives. Yes. Anybody else? Thoughts? Yes. Nice and loud. Yes. And and I would say asking God what to do next in the context of knowing how forgiven you are, it will be reflexive because part of it is just you walk in here and the way you best minister to people is embracing the forgiveness in a deep way that God has given you. And it will just flow out of you. You won't have to overthink it, I think. Yes. Yes. It's true. Cool. Well, think about that question. 
What is God asking you to do next? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this community. Thank you. Um, thank you for just loving us and, and embracing us where we're at and challenging us. And I just ask that as we eat together, as we sing together, as we meditate, and as we pray over one another, that your grace and your peace would abound. I ask that in your holy name. Amen.